you're about to enter seventh heaven. If you like this pod, then you can show your support by rating us five stars and hitting that little subscribe button to help us climb the pod rankings and spread the sevens gospel. If you're looking for extra content, you can go to our YouTube page or our social channels, Twitter and Instagram, our handle at seventh heaven pod. Again, like, subscribe, share, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back once again to Seventh Heaven, your celestial one-stop pod for all things rugby sevens. I'm Bernsey and Mitch and Chip are back in the clouds with me once again to talk things all rugby sevens. In the week that it should have been Cape Town sevens, in fact, this pod is going to be released on the Saturday. You have been getting lit up at the Cape Town Stadium, but alas, COVID has robbed us. But to make up for that, we have a man who, well, Let's face it, there is no bigger superstar in South African rugby history. But I can't take the credit for it, can I, Chip? You are bloody welcome, Bernsey. I know, <laughs> I, I know I've made you Christmas. Um, I sent out a shot in the dark to her banner and, and now we've got him. We've reeled him in. He's had a little nibble on the bite. The old 3,000 follower De Carpentier has, has reeled in the big fish. Um, you are welcome. Absolute money man, Chip. Money man. Well played, sir. He must follow you already, though, because otherwise it just would have gone straight into his random inbox with all the other wannabes. I don't keep up with follow. You know me, I'm not a numbers man. I don't keep up with who's following me and who's not. 37 trials in the World Series, who knows? How many followers, who knows? We just we just carry on. You you literally just quoted how many followers you had 3, in your intro ish. of yourself. 3,000-ish, give, give or take. Luckily, we're not numbers men on this pod either, are we, Bernsey? No. What, what are we up to on the figures at the moment? People ask me, how many listens do you get? I just, I change it every time. I pluck it out of nowhere. Should we just keep that to ourselves? I don't know. I don't look at the numbers. Stories, not stats, my boys. Stories over stats. I, I, got, I, I got really obsessed with them, sort of in the height of lockdown. It was a mild addiction for you, wasn't it? Yeah. So my girlfriend made me put my phone in a box and put it on top of the fridge every evening to stop me checking on it and I start to prang out about it so I just don't check anymore just have faith in what we do is good our followership's going up our engagement's going up from what I can see let's not quantify it let's just focus on the quality keep that engagement coming folks please give us a shout on Instagram we love it Bernsey loves getting on Instagram answering your questions Chip and I also love getting on there sparking some conversations so feel free to hit us up let us know what you think of the pod and uh we're always happy to take some suggestions aren't we Bernsey? because i know that that uh let's let's face it one day our glorious ideas will dry up yeah having said that if you could follow us share us subscribe to us then that would really really help uh, spread the sevens gospel so you can do that on youtube apple music spotify instagram you name it we're on it dig us out and spread the love Anybody got any interesting news to report? Chip, how's things going at Quinns? No, good, yeah. Still getting stuck in, going well. Had uh, some positive chats with the coaches this week, so fingers crossed that leads to something more, uh, a bit more permanent, um, but looking looking promising at the moment. 
There's easier ways to say you're not playing at the weekend, mate. Just cut to the chase next time, yeah? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not even sure if I'm trying. There's, there's a chat between the back rows who aren't going, who the travelling reserve is. Uh, Stuntcock, as it's commonly known. Um, yeah. Nice. So, so I'm not sure if I'm stuntcocking tomorrow. Uh, stuntcocking on uh, Sunday. If I'm not, then uh, you've got, I've got fitness from death tomorrow morning. Would you like to be stuntcock? I'd love to be stuntcock. Then you have to do running on uh, after on the pitch. So you just like get in a big time stadium, you know, get up there, get this, get some more stash, get it seen, get it done. Soak it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any new stash to report? No new stash as yet. No, um, still the same. The, um, <laughs> the, 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 the lads, I wore one of the waterproofs today for the first time and it was commonly referred to by the rest of the lads. Why have you got that bloody bin bag on? It does nothing. It's not even waterproof. You keep hold of that stash chip. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. If it all goes Pete Tong, it's going to be on eBay before you know it. Tags in. Well, I think we all know who saw Paul Gustard last weekend at Northampton Quinns, don't we? Oh, did you speak to him? Did you say, listen, sign, sign Chippy? I'd, I had a quiet word. I had a quiet word with Guzzy. Guzzy to you and I. And um, and yeah, looks like he's taken heed of my words. I genuinely had some banter with Guzzy, which he wasn't intending to have with me, that on his way over to be interviewed before the game. So I had a, it's really cold in Northampton. So I had a Richmond top underneath my main jacket and you could only just see half the emblem, probably. Anyway, he's walking over and he goes, he goes, oh, What's that? Like, is that some old school stash? What's that? Like some French, like Toulouse or, or Leon? I can't see. What is it? And I was like, Guzzy. I pulled the jacket to one side and I was like, mate, it's the only team on the A316. Richmond, thanks very much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he's like, he's like, oh, like, what about London Scotch? They're better than you. And they, they use the same ground. Blah, blah. He had nothing, basically. He had nothing. Uh, but <laughs> good time had by good time had by all. Then Quinn's put on an absolute show in the game, and he's coming over for interview post match. And before anyone could say anything, he comes walking over with a beer ross in his hand. He goes. Oh, looks like there's two teams on the A316, don't there, lad? Yeah, yeah, you saw that. <laughs> You've nailed his accent as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was at that point that I, I dropped your name in, Chip, and you're welcome. Talking of Stash Burnsy, can I expect a nice bit of Seventh Heaven Pod merch under my Christmas tree this year? Leave me alone about the merch. Leave me alone about the merch. <laughs> It's my New Year's resolution. The merch is my New Year's resolution. Hey, Mitch, what was this article in the Telegraph by former pod guest, friend of the pod, Alex Shaggy Gray? Yeah, one of our bigger pod guests we had on, both in stature and in reputation. Um, so he, he's signed at Bath at the moment. Uh, a bit of a new start for him. Coming back from his foray into the NFL and getting back into some rugby, uh, we had good chats with him about it when we were out in Bermuda and what his aims are. And uh, he lays those out pretty clearly in this, in this article, which is exciting. I mean, firstly, I love the way Shaggy goes about his business. So I'm just going to say that, you know, I've never met anyone who backs himself more and I think that's a great trait and it's served him well so far. So, um, But he talks about his aspirations to play for England and play for the Lions. Um, and, he, and the Olympics gets mentioned in there as well. So who knows where he's going to end up, but he certainly wants to put his name in the ring, uh, his hat in the ring rather, with Eddie. Massive 2021 for Shaggy by the sounds of things. Go on the big lad, reach for the stars. 
<laughs> I love it. He hasn't even played a game for Bath yet. I think he's just, <laughs> but don't just, done, stop you, lad. just done his first week of 15s training since he was at Leeds and now he's he's aiming for the Lions. That is typical Shaggy though. He is he is ambitious as a bloke and he sets his, when he sets his mind to something, often there's nothing he, he can't achieve that lad. He, um, fair play to him. All credit to him. Go for it. You've got to aim big. And he, well, he you... believe, he's a big, big one of believing in yourself, isn't he? Well, so he actually put some method behind the uh, behind his claims as well, saying that Eddie's been talking about these sort of hybrid players, hasn't he? And Shaggy says, what a great fit I am for that sort of role. If that's going to be the role that, that people want, I can do that. I'm 110 kilos and six foot five, whatever he is, and pretty mobile. So he's, he's sort of put his hand up for that, which is fair enough. Dream big, as you said to me, Chip, this week when hitting up Brian Havana to come onto the pod and dream it and it will be. That's it. Clearly. I wish I dreamed a bit bigger than getting a podcast guest on. Win the lottery, win the lottery, win the lottery. I'll leave you trumps behind. New contract, new contract, new contract, new contract. You won the lottery, Chip. The day that Burnsy rang you up and asked you to be on 7th Heaven Pod... That was the day you won the lottery. And then the, you won the lottery the day I said I suggested you instead of noughts. I Still, that actually really cuts me, Bernsey, that I was third, maybe more further down the list. You're welcome. Do you, do you regret that, Bernsey? Because I know you're in, you, you're in a bit of a process of uh, reshuffling and you've looked at maybe subbing us out, Chip and I, for alternative guests. I know you gave Rory a, a second trial the other week. Um, I know you've been fishing around the Prem clubs for people who might might do a better job. Any progress on that? Any progress on a replacement? Or are you happy with us for the time being? You guys have come through in the last few weeks, so you've got to stay of execution. I'm not going to tin anyone before Christmas anyway. But do you know what? It's good like Seeing that. as we are talking about way, way back when, when we first started out, it was our first birthday this week, guys. First birthday of the pod. First of December 2019, our inaugural pod. What an absolute shambles. But here we are, one year don't, on, don't 25 episodes in. I would, I would say that in celebration, we should re-release the first episode, but we definitely shouldn't. Please don't. <laughs> We're like a fine wine. Uh, the first one was alright, wasn't it? I think the first one was okay. The second one was bad. Yeah. The second one left a lot to be desired of. But I think I'm going to give someone a shout out, actually, because after, well, quite a lot of debate sparked from the Ben Gollings pod the other day, who I thought was an amazing guest and gave some real classy nuggets. Someone waded in, uh, Delilah Rodriguez, to say that she'd listened to all 24 episodes of the pod and it's her favourite pod out there and that we were awesome. So we're touching people in the right place, in legal places, the legal right places. I love that. I love that feedback. More of that. Big shout out. Any, any on the other side of the coin? Anyone replying saying, I hate this pod, I'm never listening again? No. At least none that I'm going to report. <laughs> <laughs> so, Burnsy, how them old knees still going on them running? I see, I see you, you're, not, you're not letting up on your social media posts. Them bones, them bones, them crumbling bones. Uh, yeah, mate, my social media is so boring. It's just runs and run routes. And people who've come running with me, neither of you, who are to do so, so far. Got Don't a worry job. about it. Oh, got a job. Chip's, got, Chip's the only one with a job, guys. Uh, that's listeners as well. You're welcome. <laughs> since, he's pulled on the, since he's pulled on the quarters of the Quins, he's too big time to come for a run with his old mate Burnsy, even though he only lives down the road. But yeah, Terrible. the run is going well. 
Running's going well. 23 of 30 runs done. Approaching the 255 mile mark. My last one's going to be next Friday, uh, the 11th of December. We've raised over 10 grand so far for hungry kids in my borough that don't qualify for government Christmas meals. So feeling pretty proud, feeling pretty knackered and ready to incinerate my trainers when the last run is done and dusted on Friday. Very admirable, Burnsy. As much as we give you a load of grief, like you're doing a good thing there and we're right behind you. Well done, our kid. We should probably make it clear. Maybe you need to push this on your own social media that like you're a good runner and you've got a decent engine, but you're not like, you know, a Fitzbo. You're not a runner per se. Like you don't, let's be honest, you don't look like an athlete. So I think if people knew that, they'd be more impressed by your achievement because... You know, if you'd been training for this, building up to this moment for years, maybe less impressive. But the fact that you sort of just got up one day and started doing eight and a half miles every day for 30 days, I think is is more admirable, more impressive. Is this a roundabout way of you saying send nudes? <laughs> <laughs> you did you did say that you'd show us your abs at the end just to prove that you didn't have any. Do a lot of exercise, eat what you want. You've been fueling up on chicken Kievs and glove boxing in between runs. Oh, chicken Kievs, those were days, Mitch, you know. Lads, remin- like we're reminiscing because it's nearly, it was sort of our, our birthday, you know, celebrations as well. Can we just reminisce about the old days when we used to record the pod in person, you know, as a group, Have chicken food. Kievs as a snack. Good times, eh? Cup of tea, Burns, we make the boys a cup of tea. Oh, good times. Outstanding. COVID, thanks, COVID. Mate, I think that even if the government rules change that, Chippy's not going to be able to find time for us. There's always that, time for you, boys. I I think he's flown the nest. I think he's saying the nest. No, I'm only joking, Chip. Let's talk Christmas party, boys. I'm going to novate responsibility to the judge, jury and executioner. I mean, Judge Chip. All right, we'll sort it out. We'll get some dates in the diary. We'll have a little court session with just us two. Um, God rest his soul, good old Sammy. Unlucky lad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) forgot about antisocial Sam (laughs) so did we he's gone anyway yeah now we'll get a date in the diary it'd be good to good to meet up right let's talk Cape Town 7s guys because it should be leg 2 of the 2021 World Series a tournament also close to my heart for spectator reasons but one that you boys hoisted the trophy back in 2016. Let's get all doughy-eyed and look through our rose-tinted spectacles at glory days past. You'll be careful with that with that uh, phrase there. I think there's been uh, some very close-to-the-bone phrases with rose-tinted spectacles. Have you seen that one on YouTube? You're talking about John Inverdale? Yeah. If you haven't seen it, just search John Inverdale rose and then it'll come up. Don't worry about that. Big shout out to John. I know he's a big listener of the pod. Yeah, but Cape Town, <laughs> Cape Town Sevens. It's one of my one of my favourites to play in. Um, I've got family over there, but that's not that's not why. It's just because it is. It's an amazing setup. The stadium's right by the water. There's a million and one things going on. It's bouncing, especially when South Africa are playing. You got fire for the finals coming out when you're running out of the tunnels. Uh, it's. Um, yeah, it's one of the, one of my favourites, and obviously, man down, it's not not taking part. 
it's energy that whole week, isn't it? It's like good vibe from the moment you touch down. You get welcomed when you come through the airport there. Um, there's a band playing when the exit to the airport. There's like a bra- like a brass band it's, and you're just straight into it. Then then when you rock up at the hotel, all the staff are there and they do a, a sort of performance for you when you arrive at the, at the hotel. And it's just, you're straight into it. That kind of sets the tone. Then you've got Cape Town with all its glory. Everything that you could possibly want to do is there and all its history um and then the tournament is pumping isn't it like i don't know whether i just have uh you know it's the nostalgia kicking in but i do remember cape town every year just being such a great buzz um such an engaged crowd friendly crowd generally although probably just blocked out the abuse um but yeah great times mate great times and hopefully we'll be back there one day it's actually we should mention for the some of the younger listeners who don't remember Cape Town. Let's be honest, is quite a step up from where the South Africa Sevens used to be. Did you ever play before it was Cape Town chip? Nah, Cape Town's my first one in South Africa. I know it was was it PE and George before that. It was George. I never played in George, so I don't know what that was like. But Port Elizabeth, it was all right, but it it, it was it was a bit dead. It was a bit dead. I don't get why you wouldn't have it in Cape Town. I don't think you can have everything in Cape Town. I think you've got to spread it out around the country. It was in Durban for the first couple of years, actually. Then George for eight years. Port Elizabeth until 2014. And yeah, 2015, Cape Town. It's been rocking and rolling. It is such a fun tournament to be out. What do you boys get up to on the week in Cape Town? Are you doing much training? Because you'll have obviously played Dubai the week before, so you'd be pretty shagged. And then Cape Town's such an awesome city to explore do they take the load off the training and give you a chance to enjoy yourself yeah there's always that week two balance we've probably spoken about it before but the kind of tactics around how you rest and recover that week two versus also trying to do a bit of training so that you um get what you need from the training sessions and improve from week one to week two um but you got to make sure that you have a bit of downtime because if you're cooped up, if you're not doing anything but being in the hotel and on the training field, you're missing out on Table Mountain. Um, we're right by the uh, the wharf down Co- there on the front, which is Co- yeah, coffees by the waterfront, cards by the waterfront, outstanding. Some of the finest views you'll you'll get on the tour. I think looking back up at Table Mountain, having a coffee, and uh, sometimes you know they do that good deal where they give you a crepe or something sweet with a coffee. I don't know. Um, get get down there. You got nice. like beautiful, beautiful beaches as well. Um, oh, we've had some great times, haven't we? We've had some nice days off down in down in that part of the world. Stunning, Camps Bay. All lads all go to see the penguins every year. And look, well, we have spoken about it before, but it is appropriate to be talking about it once more. Just reminisce for me that 2016 final, beating South Africa in their own backyard. A man in a blue scrum hat going from 60 metres. On the rampage. Yeah, luckily Cecil slipped, so there was not many people chasing me. Uh, I just heard Verna, heard the crowd going mad. I was like, oh, they're screwing me in. And looked up at the big screen, it's Werner Cock, crazy Tarzan chasing me in. Yeah, no, it was a um, hell of a tournament, great memories. Um, don't score many from that far out, so yeah, it was good to get over the whitewash. But to be honest, I thought we were going into extra time at the end. Do you remember, Mitch? From because um, I think it was, I thought it was seventeen all, but I think we won nineteen seventeen. Because um, uh, Branco missed his, not Branco. Um, he was kicking at the no, end. Justin, Justin, I think. Hedl. Justin missed Justin his kick. Missed his kick to level it to take it to extra time. I was shouting at boys saying, "Get in position for kickoffs." Right, same. I don't know how we missed out. 
two questions mm. coming from that. One, you mentioned about looking up at the big screen and seeing Werner Koch chase you down. Do you guys use the screen in a game regularly or is it just something that sometimes comes into your atmosphere and you're able to use it positively? And I guess I imagine it works against you as well sometimes. It must be a weird sensation. Don't normally look at it, but when you've got... When I was on a big break, I kind of just caught it out of the corner of my eye. I'm all, I heard the crowd and I kind of looked like as I was sprinting. It's a quick, I just had like you have a corner of your eye, kind of your peripheral vision. And then I obviously felt Werner coming, coming on my hat. Yeah, I, I don't ever really look at the screen unless it's a replay or looking at the time or whatever. No, I don't really look at it during the game. Yeah, I think that's probably the only time in a game I've ever looked at the screen. Werner Koch, the lovely chap he is, picks you up at the end and gives you a nice little pat there, uh, Chip, after your try. But coming back to Justin Heddle, missing the kick, clock in the red. Werner Koch scores in the left-hand corner. South Africa are pressurising you consistently. The score is almost inevitable. Were you guys, were you guys one man down by any chance? I don't think so. Or am I making Not that unless up? Someone, we were, I didn't have any... We didn't have any cards. I remember thinking, let's try and just try and keep them wide, make the kick harder. Yeah. Uh, and for some reason, they could have kept could have kept playing and going down the middle, and then they went out to the left. Weird, eh? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask because you know they had to, they they scored out wide, and I just thought that's putting so much pressure on that kick, and if he misses it, then that's the game. Obviously, we, when we play, we get to situations like that and we think, oh yeah, definitely kick out, get, get out wide because we know Mitch is going to slot the kick. We've got to back the conf- put the confidence in the kicker. Like we've, we, when, we, when you've got it, you've got it. Exactly right, Chip, exactly right. Um, but you, you say that as if it's straightforward, Burnsy, but you know that, that's the sixth game, week two, played 14 minutes, clocks in the red. So actually having the presence of mind there to maybe be aware of what the score is, etc. Uh, not as easy as it sounds. And under that fatigue, so maybe it just wasn't in their minds. Is that something you would say as a captain in that scenario to refocus the players to say, "Look, we're seven behind. We're running out of time. We need it to. We want it to be a gettable kick, or we need it to be a gettable kick." Not really, because primarily you're you're telling the information is what do we need to do to score a try? Really, like if if there's going to be any information, it's that, and then you deal with the kick after that because genuinely like I know you know Chip is uh is an underhand mugging me off but before but the genuinely as a kicker you have to back yourself to to kick it from anywhere so you're not going to be like oh guys by the way if you score can you just get under the sticks for me I mean obviously it's nice when that happens but you you can't prioritize that over just the the scoring of the try because otherwise people put plays in the decision making in a way that's probably not useful yeah, as a player as well, I think you, you, you're very aware, like whenever you score a try, apart from in the World 10 series, that you are aiming for, for closer to the sticks to make the conversion easier. Even if it's nil-nil in a game, like or you're 14 or 21 nil up, you are always trying to get closer to the sticks. Uh, and you just take the five yeah. points when, when you get them. It's like, make, it's like putting the icing on the plate and then putting the cake on top of it. You just don't do that. Well, with Cape Town nicely reminisced, seems just about right to be getting our star guest on. Ladies and gentlemen, biggest guest in the pod history, Brian Habana in Seventh Heaven. One night in heaven, one night in heaven. Uh, Mavimba's finished that though, Burnsy. Brian, we don't like to we don't like to get into Burnsy on this podcast. He's very fragile, he's very sensitive. We we don't like to go there. All right. Just give, um, give him a wide berth. 
If if anything, Burnsy, I'm 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 loving your Chesterfield background. Um, coming in, coming in hot, Brian. Much better than your shirt. Have you been prepped to climb into me like the boys do every week? Basically, I feel this is a stitch up. <laughs> it's nice to have a break from ribbing him. Burnsy, you doing the pot out of Bermuda? Were you in Bermuda as well? <laughs> yes. Don't bring that Sore up either, Brian. He's he's sore about that. Sore point. I was the only one to not be in Bermuda. <laughs> Where are you, Brian? Are you in London at the moment? I am in South Kensington. It has been an extremely boring, lonely three and a half weeks so far. Um, and as I leave, everything opens up, which is extremely weird. But yeah, it's been um, been interesting over here. Um, adhering to the rules and regulations, obviously. So maintaining social distancing, eating pre-cooked, ready-made meals. Um, it's, been, it's been incredible. <laughs> Must be nice to have some company up in the clouds in seventh heaven then. Um, so good good to have you on. Love that segue. <laughs> Look, Brian, the reason we were so keen to get you on is because were it not for COVID, then we would all be getting excited for the Cape Town Sevens, which would have been this weekend. Everything shifted back a week for some reason. I'm yeah. not quite sure why. Uh, and I presume that you would have been out there getting tackled into a swimming pool uh, by the side <laughs> of the pitch. Well, judging by the start of the call, I'm assuming you wouldn't have been there. So yeah, I would have probably been. Um... <laughs> I'm joking. It is. It's oh, this year has been oh, deflating in so many ways. I think you know both Tom and Rich know the incredible atmosphere around Cape Town summertime. Uh, you know, that stadium is something really special. Last year, also a groundbreaking one where we had the women's competition being you know co-jointly run, uh, which I think was brilliant, and we saw some phenomenal you know ex- experiences down there. One of which was Brian getting tackled into a pool in front of forty-five thousand people by Danielle Waterman um, and stepping out in his budgie smugglers, which Fuff the clerk apparently made famous in the twenty nineteen World Cup, but which I actually made famous like seven years before that. So you got in there first. We all saw it. <laughs> we didn't all see it. I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, oh, Mitch, that's uh, that's interesting. But yeah, it was. It, yeah, I mean, this world has been again. Yeah, it's, it's been a deflating year. So many. Um, you know, sport has been absolutely ravaged and devastated. But hopefully, you know, as we start coming out of this, as yeah, hopefully the vaccine that has now arisen you know, is sort of introduced, that um, we can get some back to some form of normalcy because, jeepers creepers, this has been anything but. Yeah, Brian, Cape Town's like one of my favourite tournaments to play in and Mitch and the rest of the boys are vouch for it. What makes it so special? Why did why does everyone, look, why, do, why do we all love playing there? And what makes it special for the South Africans? Because there's always a hell of a crowd. Mm. Until South Africa lose, and then the crowd disperses. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the I think time of the year is brilliant because it literally you know summertime school holidays have just started, so everyone just wants to get back into some form of rugby. They would have experienced watching the autumn games up in the northern hemisphere, but there wouldn't have been any live rugby in South Africa for a good month and a half post the Curry Cup. So you know, that experience, the, the new stadium, you know, is really really special. I and in which is so close to sea, but there's a lot, so much to do in and um, it's pretty brilliant. And yeah, the time of the year is just absolutely perfect. It's, the weather is much better than London and at the same time at the London Sevens <laughs> in the summer. Um, so I think that that plays a, a quite quite a quite a big part in in what is a brilliant you know fan experience. And it's pretty cool for you now, I guess, because you get to enjoy the seven stuff uh, in your sort of more corporate role, I suppose, uh, your ambassadorial role from the other side of the fence. But it's not that long ago, obviously, that you were on the field doing your sevens thing. Like, do you have fond memories of of those tournaments that you were involved in? 
I was wondering how long that was going to take to bring up. Um, I know you beat South Africa in the semifinals in Rio. I know <laughs> I wasn't there, Mitch. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> let's not go there. No, I sleep. So I think like many, um, I tried and failed. I think the opportunity to have a glimmer of being able to represent your country at Olympics, something that no rugby player, you know, before 2016 was able to do. And there were only a fortunate few that got to experience that. I tried my hand at it. I think there, there were a lot of things that counted in my favor. Sort of got injured for the London Paris tournaments. Um, Bernard Laporte didn't want to release me at certain times. And it also felt a little bit weird coming into this band of brotherhood, which, again, I was so easily reaccepted into it. But these guys have sort of been, you know, working extremely hard over a four, eight, ten year career to get that opportunity to go to the Olympics. So I almost felt unworthy um, at the end and sort of had a discussion with Neil Powell about the possibilities. And you could sort of see how much it actually had meant to that group of players. Um, some incredibly fond memories for the fact that I got back to Cape Town just after playing a top 14 game, had to do an horrendous week of training, which got me questioning every second of every training why I was doing this. Um, and then after having traveled uh, extensively with the 15-man game for just over 12 years, to then fly from Cape Town to London, London to JFK, JFK to Phoenix, Phoenix, Vegas, economy class was definitely a new experience for Brian after having done it in 2004 again. And just you know, re-emphasized, um, yeah, you know, the incredible effort that the Sevens players go through, um, bar the training, bar the you know, the intensity of the warm-ups that I was, wow, like I literally after my first two warm-ups in Vegas, I sort of had a quiet word with Neil Powell saying, "Is it really necessary for me at the age of 32 to be doing exactly what the 21-year-olds are doing?" Neil Powell smashing you on the pads. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Neil is, he's a coach that gets involved. Obviously he played the game. You know, he has a wrestling background as well. And I'll never forget, like, I think it was my second training. We were doing like a rap drill. I mean, I played like 15, I played World Cups and I wasn't like in a framework of like, I'm going to give like 140%, which I should, probably should have been. And I was like trying to go over a ball and he just came from nowhere <laughs> and absolutely <laughs> freaking, I like got up and I was like, that just happened. It, Neil Parch like cleaned me blatantly off a ball. So one like, nil. <laughs> Big time one nil. Yeah, and, then, and then obviously, I mean, he was only like two years older than me, so I couldn't put him in his place because he was still the coach and he had to be respected. So, <laughs> But it was brilliant. So Brian, obviously it sounds like Neil's pal slaps you about a bit, but uh, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I'm fascinated by that dynamic and how the seven squad responded to you because you're pretty much one of the largest fish in the game at that time, as you mentioned, World Cup, European Cup, Super Rugby, and then you coming in to their environment. Did they treat you with a bit of deference or did they just want to go full test match on you from the word go and prove <laughs> that they were as good as Brian Habana? Yeah. No, it was um, it was actually pretty awesome, to be honest. And I, you know, I played sevens in 2004 uh, you know, as a 21-year-old and it was a very different environment, a very different atmosphere to the extremely professional layer of structure that it is now and obviously i've been watching from afar i was actually hoping to be a part of the commonwealth in 2014 but murad bujalal again had other plans um so I, I sort of had an indication of you know what the brotherhood was really about and i think the manner in which i got accepted back into it i think i sort of in a way really had to humble myself and dumb myself down as if i was 
you know, a debutante in the side. Um, but I think the way I was accepted, the way I was eased in, because again, two very different intensities going from playing, you know, the 15 man format of the game, you know, sort of trying to get back into, into the sevens uh, arena. So, but it was pretty cool. Um, you know, sort of brought the guys around a Starbucks when we landed in, in Vegas, um, sort of got Oakley to give us some sunglasses. So try to make me at my position in the team, at least be accepted. I look like sort of giving them a few things and making sure that no, I wasn't just looking after myself, you know, carrying bags and, and doing what you do. But like, so there, there definitely was a brotherhood and it was, it was easy to be accepted into that. Um, just by the, by the sheer nature of the boys, which was, which was pretty cool. We all know the route to, to a rugby player's heart is through free stuff. So any, you're smart, any, smart moves. Any athlete, any athlete match, not just rugby players. We love a freebie. <laughs> No, well, I, I'm just, I don't want to move things on too much, but obviously, like you said, you played in 2004, you involved uh, in that 2015-16 season, um, and now you, you're seeing it um, as a sort of more of a spectator. So you've seen the game through a huge number of years develop and change. Um, one, like, what are your reflections on where it's kind of gone through in that period? Um, if you can give that in a, in a kind of couple of minutes. And then and then what's next? Because obviously we're in a pretty tough spot at the moment with the game being on, on pause and on hold. But with it being the Olympics next summer, like, where do you see it transitioning to next as well? Yeah, there was definitely a massive step up in terms of the professionalism of the game. You know, when I first got there in, 20, in 2004, it was sort of like a, a springboard, um, you know, a, a second tier type thing for a group of players that was wanting to get into a national team or guys that weren't quite making the cut at super rugby level and, and then, you know, had an opportunity to do something else. So, yeah, I mean, the the rise in the professionalism is huge. I think seeing the game grow in terms of players becoming contracted, which was never, ever, you know, a thing back in the early days before, you know, before I'd say 2008, 2009. Um, and I think the big turning point came at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, when it got accepted into the Olympics, because all of a sudden, all the unions now understood that they need this structure um, as professional as possible if they really want to have a realistic opportunity to not only go to the Olympics, but have a potential of winning a medal. And I think that changed you know, massively. And then also having the women's sevens also be included in, in the Olympics, which again, made the game have to accelerate at a point in which the spectacle that was going to be portrayed in Rio was of market validity uh, worth, you know, marketing worth, spend worth and everything. So the professionalism, the contracting of players was definitely something that wasn't around. And it's great to see that. I think we have also seen with 2016, it's extremely difficult to try to do both. So you can't, you know, in 2004, you could still play sevens and go back to play Super Rugby or you know, go back to play Curry Cup. You know, now nah, like it's, it's impossible to try, go for two, two flat out weeks of tournaments, you know, have a week off, go into a many preseason ahead of the next tournaments, you know, to be, to be ready. So, yeah, I think, you know, the disappointment of Rio, Rio in terms of the Springboks and how that has evolved, um, has sort of gave a lot of learning, but to then have the disappointment of Tokyo 2020, um, where some players will come to the end of their careers, you know, there's only that opportunity. Um, you sort of gutted, you know, for those, I like to think of someone like Cecil Africa, who, you know, the legend in the game of sevens, you know, Tokyo 2020 was his last opportunity and all of a sudden that doesn't happen. So, you know, where the game is going, not just, you know, sport has been absolutely obliterated by COVID. You know, they're talking about a $62 billion loss, um, you know, in revenue from a sporting perspective. Is that just your HSBC salary? <laughs> oh, no, realistically only half. Realistically only half. Um, you remember, remember there's Brian O'Driscoll, 
George Creek and Brian. I'm, I'm still in my second year, so I'm, I'm still working the way up the ranks. Uh, really. <laughs> um, so, you know, sports have been absolutely obliterated. You know, Team GB and, you know, the, the unions now sort of releasing, you know, those elements. So, Mitch, I don't have an answer, you know, of what, what the future holds. I think we're all wanting to get sport back as quickly as possible, get fans into the stadium. Um, but yeah, it's 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 been hectic, um, you know, and it's sort of been as being a part of the rugby fraternity and seeing the massive impact that it's had on so many. Um, I mean, I I don't even know mentally what I how I would have gone through having to train you know, in my garden and then get ready for a six to eight month period to even get into a period of you ready, but there's uncertainty of what you're going into. Which is again, I, I tip my hat to to all the athletes, you know, rugby and every other sporting discipline that it has had to go through this. Because again, you know, I think they've you know mentally had to show immense strength um, in terms of how they want to come out of it. So, hoping you know that Tokyo 2021 still go, goes through, hoping that you know the stuff like the Lions happens because you know sport really can play an integral part in giving people experiences that um, they can literally make their lives better. So, yeah, it's it's been a gutting year, um, and like I said, I think there's just everyone is hoping for some sort of parity come come 2021. Nice. Um- Look, we, we've got limited time and just moving away from the sevens for a moment, Brian. Pretty big thing happening in rugby at the moment is the Pablo Matera scenario that has been unfolding over the week. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult one. Um, I think if we were all to go back into our Twitter timelines, our Instagram you know, photos of when, yeah, I was I'm grateful that in 2007 when we were winning the World Cup, I was worrying about how many Facebook friends we were getting, friend requests we were getting. And now all of a sudden you've got to be really careful of what happens. Unfortunately, there is a line. Um, you know, it was overstepped. You know, I think do you look at how one changes in 10 years without a doubt? You know, I think given you know, the incredible historic experience of Argentina beating the All Blacks for the first time three weeks ago, um, I think it's extremely unfortunate. Um, you know, just given the current narrative of you know how careful you have to be with the words you say. I do think those players find themselves in a very sticky situation. You know, do I believe they are changed without a doubt? Um, you know, I think you know, as as a 19-year-old you know, coming into the international environment is very different to you know having represented your country, having traveled the world, and experiencing things. So, yeah, like I said, I think the powers that be are, are those that need to make you know strong decisions. Um, I do believe you know they have learned a lot particularly in the last two weeks. Um, you know, they probably would have forgotten those type, type of things they said. Um, but yeah, it, it's a tough one, you know, with the current narrative you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement and you know, the strive for equality um, across the board. Yeah, it, it is tough. Um, like I said, it's, it's a difficult one to, to sort of judge because, you know, I think if we all had to go back and given the platforms we're on, you know, and given the social media um, environments that are now available to so many, and you had to track and trace each and every one of us. Um, and it would be pretty interesting to see what that report card would look like. Yeah, I think you're, you're bang on with some of that stuff. I think with this issue and other issues in the game and, and some of the stuff we, we were talking about before we came on air was about um, the Oceans Apart documentary, yeah. um, which Dan Leo has put together. And we were saying, is there, should there be more responsibility at the top level, the kind of administrators of the game, to have an input in these sorts of uh, areas to kind of dish out consequences where they should be dished out? Because um, my sense is there's a bit of a reluctance to get involved in some of these issues. Is that something that you see, that you sense as well? Yeah, Mitch, I think... I don't think it's a reluctance. I think it's understanding, you know, where the emphasis actually lies, you know, who 
actually has the power or the control to take those steps. You know, you look at the the Oceans Apart documentaries, you look at you know the various different things that are arising on your Netflixes and that you're able to then open and broaden your own horizons. Um, and again, I think if we all had to be put in a position of power and you had to make that decision, you know, you'd get 7 billion different decisions, you know, probably all the time because we're all very divided. We're all you know, very different to how we have the outlook that we have on life. So I think World Rugby are, are trying their best to you know, get global calendars, get everyone aligned and, you know, the, the players unions around the world are trying to make sure that you know the player welfare is being maintained so there's just so many different dynamics uh, involved in all of this that is not an easy job i think if it was it was an easy job you know we wouldn't be having these constant arguments and constant conversations about how to make things better so like i said i think you know everyone is i don't think it's a lack of trying um i think we potentially need to have a change in mindset of how we potentially see things you know like oceans apart like highlighting the inadequacies of the various different elements of, you know, where rugby is currently positioned in certain areas. You know, the debate between the tier one and the tier two nations has been going on for, you know, the last decade, decade and a half. So it's not, it's not new things we're talking about, but I think as the game becomes more professional, as the game becomes so looked in from the outside world, because we can't, can't, consistently portray these amazing values of rugby, of respect, integrity, you know, all these things, the camaraderie and all of a sudden, you know, if we portray those values, but it's not actually being put into place on the various different levels, but it's just such an intricate web of things that like, say, I think it's easier to, to judge and comment and critique, you know, when you actually not the one sitting there and, and making decisions. So yeah, it's a tough one to make a call on because they're just like, say, there's just so many things that have to be taken into consideration. Um, right. Look, Brian, conscious that you've got a very busy schedule and you've been super generous with this already. Autumn Nations Cup, you're going to be on the comms tomorrow. Who's going to win, England or France? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very tough for a French team without their you know, 13 of their mainline players to come up against an England side that's looking incredibly impressive under Eddie Jones, even though everyone is saying how boring rugby currently is. Um, you know, if you're winning, if you're winning tournaments, um, you know, how boring do you want, want to be when you got that trophy in your change room? So England looking extremely powerful, I think. Do you think it is boring at the moment? Again, it's it's a ju- very subjective judgment call that you're making. You know, what is boring? Is winning rugby boring? You know, I won a World Cup in 2007 and you know, people also complained about, you know, us kicking. Yet, you know, you have a World Cup winner's medal that you have for the rest of your life. So, yeah, like I said, I think conditions taking into place, the fences are just so good that, like, you know, you, you need to strangle and suffocate. Um, I don't think we're losing unique individual brilliance. And I think we saw the Villiers try from the French this past weekend, which was which was pretty was pretty special. So like I think England will win. Um I, I think the French and this young, exuberant team that they have will put up a, a really good fight a really good fight. But yeah, like I said, England have just shown their dominance over the course of the Six Nations and the Autumn Nations Cup. And like I said, given what happened, you know, in that final in twenty nineteen, I think they're they're pretty happy with the year they've had. And it sounds like, Brian, talk about boring. There was nothing boring about your 2007 celebrations as well, but you have to let us know about those another time when you come on the pod again. <laughs> definitely, I'll definitely. There actually, there actually wasn't much, much from Brian Abanda's celebrations. Um, 2009 was potentially a little bit more epic, beating the All Blacks in New Zealand to win, win the Rugby Championship. There's, some, there's a lot more interesting stories coming out of those camps then than what there were. I, I, I had to be very wary in, in, in France in 2007. Didn't want to be caught uh, behind Bosnia. <laughs> <laughs> Shrewd move. Uh, cool, gentlemen. One night in heaven, one night in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard de Carpentier.
The postman. The postman is at it again. Outstanding. <laughs> Who next? He loves it, doesn't he? Who do he you want next? It. Is there no? Is there no one else? <laughs> we can't go bigger than Brian, though. I think that's it. I think we can't go bigger than Brian. He's we've, not we've, only a huge name, potentially, arguably the biggest, like the first superstar in rugby. When you think about it, spanned beyond the game. But what a bloody nice bloke as well. Yeah. Top, top, Good guy. top geezer, wasn't he? You think with all his success and like everything he's done throughout the rugby, like the top was he record point scorer, record try scorer in the World Cups, like nine, 15 tries in 19 World Cup games or something mad like that. Um, and then to yeah. to just be so down to earth and talking about being humble in sevens, like coming into an environment and being humble and getting smashed by the head coach, like you've got to be a kind of special person. And it, I think it's testament to like good people surviving rugby and if you're a good person and, and a, obviously he's a great player as well it just helps you get through and that's why he's always landing on his feet and his testament in his, his interview there is what a good bloke yeah just no pretense I think that's such a nice thing to come across with someone who's had such huge success but like he's can, he's taken that success from the field and now he's smashing it in his life now it seems I mean we didn't get a chance to get into that but you know doing the to stuff on TV, doing the media work, does amazing work with his own foundation back in South Africa and stuff. So just seems to be, seems to be doing a very good job on all fronts and uh, great to, great for him to bless the clouds with his presence. Unbelievable. I can't, I can't believe that just happened. Is the rugby fan in you going absolutely nuts right now, Bernsey? Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, when you're, you're YouTube. Are you speechless? Are you spe you're speechless, aren't you? Which it's is a weird experience. For a podcast. Is he going to cry? It <laughs> looks know, like he's going to cry. Are you crying? It's not a good. It's not a good trait, is it, to be speechless as a commentator, podcaster? But yeah, that was just a absolutely mad twenty minutes of having, you know, as you said, one of the most celebrated rugby players in the world on to come and chat a bit of sevens, touch on a few war stories for his second visit when he comes back into the clouds and just talk openly, chippy. Hey, thanks to the early Christmas present. Okay, Bernsey, um, I'll just let the podcast listeners know that when I said when I said potentially we might have Brian, o, uh, Brian O'Driscoll, when I said we might potentially have Brian Habana on the podcast, you said to me, um, if you get Brian Habana on the podcast, you will put a picture of me at the top of your Christmas tree. Um, I am waiting for the post uh, on <laughs> on uh, the social media accounts at Seventh Heaven Pod um, of a picture of me atop your Christmas tree. Bernsey, pick a nice picture, please. I completely forgot that I said that, but I'm going out to buy the Christmas tree tomorrow and I will 100% come through with that. It's going to be a bizarre experience putting a picture of you, Chippy, at the top of my Christmas tree. And then my missus is actually away for the whole of Christmas and New Year's. So I'll just be sat in my, in my flat with a Christmas tree with a picture of you at the top. That's it. <laughs> well, you always know, Boozy. I'm always looking over you, giving you a nod of approval. And every time you put the kettle on, think of me. Right, let's talk about some of the content that Brian got into there. Let's start with Pablo. What do you two think? I think it's, I think like Mitch obviously and Brian kind of touched on it. Everyone's got a past and the ability to change is a big thing, but you've, you've got to be more responsible like now as a professional. Uh, Mitch, like, uh, you can speak about it in a minute, but the lads who went to the 2016 Olympic Games were vetted. They said, literally, go back through your social history, social media history, go back through everything you've ever posted. Like some of the lads deleted the Facebooks, deleted, go back through old tweets and just have a look. I mean, it's just not one to be putting out there. And some of the content in the stuff he's tweeted is like just 
unacceptable kind of 10 years down the line. I mean, it's still, it wasn't, wasn't right then and it's not right now, but. I, I think in a way, like the, there's a degree of distraction in focusing on him as an individual because the bigger issue is the fact that we, we are unable to handle this as a, as a sport. And it's not unique to rugby. Like you see it in other sports. I was watching the, um, the uh, Anton Ferdinand documentary the other day as well about that whole debacle with John Terry and stuff. And, it, and it, so it's not unique to rugby, but I think rugby, the problem rugby has is it's so wrapped up in being a sport of values that it's then very hard to uh, admit fault as a sport and, and, and as individuals. So we, that's the same for anyone. So it'd be very hard for Matera to come out on camera and say, that I was racist, that that comment was racist and that point of view is racist because it was and what he posted was racist. And But no one, there seems to be a reluctance to come out and even say, that's not saying that he is racist in his attitudes now because I suspect he has changed a lot and I don't know, I've never spoken to him. But the fact that we aren't able, and maybe he's not able, maybe it's asking too much, but for even... Uh, as a rugby community for us to be able to say that is racist and that that is not acceptable. Do you know what I mean? We still feel the need to sort of skirt around that. And um, and I was listening to Hugo Monia was, was talking really well on it uh, and I saw a video on Twitter and it's the authorities who, who are kind of contributing to that skirting around of the issue. And I think it's because we're trying to protect rugby for, you know, as being this sanctimonious game and, uh, I think we can still hold on to the strong values that rugby's got and admit fault because otherwise you can't progress. And actually it, under, it undercuts, it pulls the legs out from underneath you. If you're trying to promote yourself as a game of values and yet you can't admit fault when you, when you get it wrong, what are you basing it on? Yeah, I'm 100% with you, Mitch. Yeah, like if you speak to rugby players about like what rugby stands for, like the first words out of every like nine out of 10 people's mouth will be values. So when this something less crops up, they need to be able to say, listen, this ain't right. Like, and like banning and reinstating and whatever you're going to do. I mean, if there's a, if there's a punishment, stick with it. Don't bottle out of it just because some of the players kicked off. Yeah. But you, that, and that's exactly it though, isn't it? We get, we will get because they've fucked around with, you know, reinstating him, punishing him, whatever. Like no one knows what status he's now got within the union, within the squad. And as a result, that's sort of where the conversation goes. It's like, should he be punished? Should he not? Uh, and that is an issue, but it's more uh, like, how do we deal with the fundamental topic at hand, which is the ra racism and being able to have that conversation. Um, and I think we, we haven't found a way of being able to have that conversation. Uh, and I don't know, I don't have all the answers as to how we do that. But uh, because, you know, I say, I say, like, come and admit, admit your faults. Like, it's a really easy thing to do. If Matera comes out and says, I was racist, that was a racist comment I made. I shouldn't have done that. He's going to probably double the number of abusive messages that him and his family are getting right now. Because I'm sure he's got an absolute barrage of pretty savage abuse uh, from people who are understandably hurt. Not say, and I, and I don't condone the abuse either, because I don't think that's conducive. But, um, you know, that is the, that is a barrier to people having the conversation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Better to actually just get back under the shell, let it blow over, but then we're not we're not progressing the conversation, we're not learning. In a situation like this, do you think that World Rugby should be stepping in and not leaving it solely down to the UAR? World Rugby have obviously got their part to play 
in in issues wrapped up in the game right now racism well it has been for a long time but this is an opportunity for us to talk about racism as a sport um i don't know what sort of guidelines are out there or whether there's a, a previous history of world rugby dealing with these issues either in terms of sanctions or uh facilitating education but i haven't come across anything from world rugby on that front um and so, yeah, I think that of course they've got a responsibility. They've got a responsibility like we all do, but being the, the sort of uh, heads of the game, if you want to look at them like that, which is sort of the role they play, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, they need to have a stand and a line on these issues, don't they? They need to have a party line on it that needs to be visible. What do you think, Chip? Should he have been reinstated? No, I th I'm, I'm kind of for if you've made a decision, you should stick with it. I mean, right or wrong, I, I feel like this is. I feel, feel like it was the right decision to maybe not strip him of captaincy, just ban him. Like if he's banned, like that hurts the team as much as him being stripped of captaincy because he was still gonna, he was still out of the squad, wasn't he? So I'd have, if it had been in my hands, I'd have banned him. Like spoke to him like about this about the situation. Like hopefully educate him. Like. I don't really know wh where else you can go with it from there. Like, it's such a, it's, it's not like you can sit down and say, it's not like he's taking a supplement that's banned and say, oh, like next time you take, take a supplement, make sure you check on this website that it's legal. It's a, like a, it's a, it's a grown thing. Like it's a learned habit that there can't be like, you're a naughty boy, don't do that again. Like he's always going to feel that is whether he like, the kind of lesson you've got to say to him, I don't know, it's it's bleak, but like you can't train racism out of someone. You can just say, stay off social media, don't put stuff on there. Like, I guess he, you know, the the chances are there are other, how old was he, 18, 19, whatever. There are other 18, 19 year olds growing up now, potentially playing rugby, who are having the same thoughts that he put out on social media back then. They might not, they just might not be publishing them. Do you know what I mean? And we need to try and capture those people now and this is an opportunity to potentially do that to educate to exp you know explain why that is wrong like you know it's it's obvious to some people but not to everyone there, there are some people that harbor those views still and 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 these are the moments to try and capture those people educate and, and move everything forward does the reinstatement of matera not give rise to an attitude from people that they can sort of say what they want now while they're nobodies. And then if they make it, then they can turn around and say, well, that was me then, but me now has learned an awful lot and that's not representative of who I am. Because as you said, young players are looking at Pablo Matera. They're looking at every player who's playing at the top of the game and wishing they could be like them. And maybe there are young Argentinians who are of the same mindset that Matera was in his youth. And thinking, well, I can continue to be like this. And then when I do achieve something, and if I'm found out, then I can put my hands up and I'll be exonerated. So it almost creates a consequenceless culture. Yeah, I think that you're right there, Burns. I think his lack of punishment, I mean, obviously he's had negative press, but like in a couple of weeks, it's going to be kind of forgotten. And I know that that's terrible, but that's just the way it is. Like if it's, if it's not a punishment that's lasted, it's not going to, it's not going to affect anything. Um, and I feel like kind of wrapping his hand, wrapping his hands, and then rubbing them better isn't isn't the way to go. One night in heaven, one night in Is it is there something interesting around like that stardom thing? Because I don't know whether I'm misremembering this, but like you know the racing the cheetah thing, some of his like 
endorsements. I just remember him being like a bit of a superstar, wasn't he? He was a massive superstar, mate. So like, is there... So I guess the point is Brian Habana was probably the first rugby superstar that I remember seeing the stuff on TV, seeing some of his endorsements, the sort of uh, the racing the cheetah thing, which was a gimmick, but capture, you know, how many views has that video has? I don't know. And now we're in the era where we're seeing Maratoji signing with um, a rock nation uh, along with uh, Colby who's on that label and, and Khaleesi as well. So we're in the era of rugby stardom, I think, where it's really probably going to take off, but, Arguably, Brian Habana paved the way for that. Do you think? Yeah, hundred percent. He's the he's the OG of bloody uh, of rugby. Like, he's, a, he's the first player who was in the professional era who got pushed. Like Lomu got games named after him, but that was kind of like as the game was building. But like now with endorsements and TV and image, and he was the one who's, who's pushed in your face. Like everyone who like a lot of people who don't know rugby will know Brian Habana. Could, could have been us, Chip, couldn't it? Signing for for um, big labels and being being the next rugby superstars could still be. Who knows? Yeah, not with this face, mate. Not with this face. Right, what a ding dong an episode! Thank you so much, not to Brian Habana, but to Richard the Carpentier for delivering Brian Habana, biggest name in the clouds, biggest star in the clouds in the pod's history to celebrate our first anniversary in style. But. Until next time, from all of us, up in the clouds, up in seventh heaven, it is adios. See you Bye.